Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. That's the biggest thing, I think, in the short term, is to make sure we free up the regulators to be able to have enough time to engage properly, to truly understand what's happening. Because what we don't all want is to be pushed as an industry into making changes that aren't the best for the long term. Today's guest discusses what regulators and lawmakers should consider in their efforts to rethink regulation for UK insurers post-Brexit. She explains what UK watchdogs should be doing now to foster innovation within the insurance sector, and how regulators themselves could innovate to improve rulemaking for financial services firms generally. She also challenges city bosses in their approach to gender diversity within the financial services sector, and outlines how she plans to grow her new business to best reflect the lessons she has learned with regards to fostering diversity of talent. These are all subjects close to her heart, because Mary O'Connor is not only a former regulator, whose 30-year career includes senior positions in the insurance sector. She also became the first woman to head up a professional services firm in the UK when she became acting CEO of KPMG in 2021. In 2022, she joined Howden Broking as CEO of its new business, Howden Capital Advisory and Placement. Hi, Mary. Welcome to Following the Rules. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm really interested to hear about your new role at Howden Capital Advisory. So let's start with that. Could you tell us about your new position, the business you're building and your plans in that role? I am so excited about Howden Cap. So Howden Cap is Capital Advisory and Placement. I'm CEO and my job is to build a £250 million business at the intersection of insurance and capital. What this is, is insurance, but not as you know it. This is using and harnessing the efficiencies in the insurance market where insurance capital is more efficient than capital being used elsewhere in order to help businesses achieve their strategic aims. So to give you a flavor of what we're doing, we're pulling together a lot of different capabilities that have traditionally been in different pockets of insurance brokers and insurance advisors and combining that with a multidisciplinary approach. We're bringing in bankers and lawyers and people who can act as advisors. We have insurance to cover things like warranties, indemnities, litigation risks, environmental risks, structured finance, which are products that support banks and financial institutions in being able to reduce risk-weighted assets and provide hedging. We have surety, which acts almost like a letter of credit to support banks in being able to issue more loans. We have trade credit, we have digital solutions, 
And importantly, we are going to have the ability to work across all kinds of capital. So insurance, reinsurance, and also alternative capital in order to be able to fashion these solutions. Now I can give you a couple of examples of some of the things that we're working on. And I think if we can get this right, we can help support some of the really good things that need to happen with the economy around investment and supporting businesses being able to be resilient in difficult times. So we recently worked with a private equity firm that wanted to make an investment into a really good company, but this company had an ongoing litigation and they didn't know how that litigation was going to resolve. Now, traditional insurance would normally only cover the back end of the litigation up to a certain point. What we were able to do is to create a solution that actually funded the litigation going forward and then provided a backstop so that if there were claims, they could be paid. And so it just opened up that investment for them and protected that company and the people who might have claims against that company going forward. And another one, my phone has been ringing off the hook with people who are looking to make investments in new green infrastructure and green transition energy projects, but are trying to make sense of broad mix of fiscal stimuli and incentives and the viability of the technology going forward. And so they're asking us, can we fashion a solution that would enable them to have a consistent view of what their returns might be over that cycle? And I'm quite excited because I think we will be able to help them with some of it. Now, insurance in these cases probably isn't the answer to everything, but it can open up other solutions that make a lot of really great things possible. So essentially what the business is doing is using insurance products to help businesses free up their capital for other uses. Exactly. That's it in a nutshell, better than I would have said it actually. Well, I'm interested to know how the government can help support you grow this business. Obviously we're in the midst of the UK government rethinking the regulatory landscape for the UK financial services sector as part of its post-Brexit reforms to the city. What could they be doing to foster innovation in insurance that they're not currently doing? So I have a couple of asks really here. So the first one being proprietary and looking at my business is I think we need regulators and policymakers to really focus on insurance and to understand how it works and to be open to using it to create innovative capital solutions. And the great thing right now is that we're at this turning point in the insurance industry where we have a tremendous amount of data and insight into the use of these products, many of which have been used for a number of years and how they could be used in the future. And I think that kind of dialogue would be immensely valuable. The insurance market has not grown massively over the last 20 years, but the property and casualty insurance markets is expected to double between now and 2040. And that has two aspects to it. One, there's a lot of specialist complex risk out there, things like cyber risk that needs to be covered and that we're gonna have a much better ability to cover than ever before. But it also means that we need to work harder to figure out how we can place and manage that risk. And that, I think, needs to be done in dialogue with the regulators. A second one really goes near and dear to my heart. I only returned recently to the insurance markets, having been a consultant. And this is the underrated financial service. And London, in particular, has such a fantastic tradition of insurance innovation, whether it be insuring the Titanic or the Space Shuttle to also having deep and liquid markets with fantastic expertise that's truly global. I think the regulators need to understand that this is a really competitive market and we need to keep fostering innovation 
And in particular, the regulatory approval process, the authorization processes, we need them to be predictable and efficient and quick and robust, all of those things at the same time, in order to be able to compete with burgeoning areas like Brussels or Luxembourg or Bermuda or Dublin, where they are really working hard to try to foster their own nascent industry. I think a third thing I would talk about is having immigration and skills policies that make it easier for the sector to recruit and develop talent it needs in things like cyber, data science, cloud computing, and AI. And I think last but not least, I'd be remiss with all the economic changes that are happening, not just in the UK, but globally, a real focus on engaging in dialogue with the sector to make sure that our policies remain stable to drive predictable outcomes for businesses over both the long and the short term. Because over the long term, we all have an interest in a sustainable and robust economy. Over the short term, entrepreneurs need to be able to make good decisions. Okay, and obviously we have a new government in the UK. To what extent do you think that the new Chancellor and his team in Treasury understand the need for these suggestions that you've just made? To what extent are they actually engaging directly with the city from your experience? Well, first of all, I've been really heartened by the fact that the government is focused on economic growth and appreciates the impact that financial services in particular can have on driving benefits for the wider economy. So I think that's a real positive. They have been engaging with industry and having discussions around the future endeavors, but this is a multifaceted issue because you have regulators on one side, the government and the economy on the other, and then business. And I think we all have an obligation to try to foster more discussion and more collaboration around a number of those issues. Okay. There's obviously been a fair amount of noise around the UK's plans to reform EU capital requirements for insurance firms specifically. That's a package of reforms known as Solvency 2. Do you have any views as to the value of that? Is there anything that lawmakers are getting wrong in their approach to Solvency 2 reforms? So it's a great question, Lucy. So Solvency 2 has been uh, overall a really big success, both from a, a regulatory standpoint and robustness in the insurance markets. And from a insurance company standpoint, the fact that we now have clear rules around how much capital businesses need to hold, how you that capital governance and market requirements and consistency right, across all of Europe, I think has been a tremendous success. But there are tensions now, which have always been in the system, but which are now coming to a head around the risk appetite, if you want to call it about the balance of where things need to be. Solvency 2 was framed just after the financial crisis. And so a lot of the assessments that were made were based on things that were happening then. But now a lot of the requirements of the system going forward have changed. And I think the biggest one is the need to be able to free up long dated capital that the insurance companies have, that the pension funds have, the capital that can be invested over a 30 year cycle in order to invest in our net zero obligations, right? If we want to get to net zero by 2050, then we need to free up investment in renewable energy, in infrastructure to match the financing of the asset. And it's very sensible for insurers and life insurance companies to want to invest in these assets because if you look at it over the long term, right? Investing in a coal production facility isn't really going to have good long-term benefits, either economically over the cycle or for society, whereas investing in a green 
solar powered panel project to bring energy into Africa will definitely be economically productive long term and bring value to society. So right now, I think there's a mismatch because there's a real opportunity to be able to encourage that, but it's not being felt fully in the regulations. Okay, and just jumping into the weeds of some of the solvency two requirements that have been proposed in light of recent volatility in the UK gilt market, gilts are obviously a low risk bond instrument used by governments to raise money to provide services and infrastructure and UK insurers and defined benefit pension schemes own around 350 billion pounds of gilts. Under proposed changes to solvency two, insurers will be incentivized to sell some of them to invest elsewhere. But the battering that gilts took in markets recently has meant that yields have risen to around 4%. And not only does that mean that it's now more expensive for the UK government to raise money, but that also means there's no big capital release coming down the track for insurance firms either. Does that concern you? So I think that this emphasizes some of the issues that are taking place as we're looking to reform solvency too, because all of this is quite live, right, in terms of trying to create changes. The EU has already gone through consultation and has made changes. The UK has gone through its consultation and is now at the far end of making the changes. And we're looking to see, can we get a real Brexit dividend, right, from the changes. There is a tension, I think, between this resilience concept that the regulators need to have and the need to invest productively over the long term. And then these are short-term issues that are happening in the market. And right now, there's a lot of arguments going on about how much risk do we hold? And I think everybody agrees there should be less. But how do we then measure the risk that that's set off against? And I think there's two things. One is that the rules need to be evidence-based. And I think most of the insurers would say that they think that we have a deep understanding of what's happening and we should have a reasonable framework for doing that and we're engaging with the regulators about that. The second one is we've got to look at this over the long term. And I think it's really important that regulators manage these rules with an understanding of what's happening in the markets. You have to have dialogue between regulators and the insurance companies at this point in time, because the rules aren't necessarily set up for the short-term facts that are happening. So you have to have the discussions around how you manage this. So that's the biggest thing, I think, in the short term, is to make sure that dialogue is happening and that we free up the regulators to be able to have enough time to engage properly, to truly understand what's happening over the medium term. Because what we don't all want is to be pushed as an industry into making changes that aren't the best for the long term. Okay, and you've mentioned a number of times now that the regulators need space to foster innovation. And you mentioned bandwidth issues, obviously changes resulting from Brexit, the pandemic, the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm just naming a few headline challenges. There are plenty more. All of these things have created a vastly increased workload for our financial services regulators. So what's your view on the regulators' ability to cope with their to-do list currently and the fact that that will be expanding in the coming months? Look, being a regulator is really difficult because you have ultimately a responsibility to ensure that the financial system, and in this case, the insurance industry is robust. At the same time, you have an obligation to foster economic growth and development, the prosperity of UK markets. And that's always a very difficult balance. They've been open, actually, particularly the FCA, around the fact that they're going to need to prioritize. And I think the most recent FCA plan, in fact, set out a much narrower view of places where they thought they could focus their time and attention to have the most impact. So that is one resolution that is helpful. 
we all need to have the UK be the best regulated place in the world. And by the best regulated, I do mean the most effective regulation because we all want a sustainable business that works, right? A financial services system that is the envy of all because it's sustainable because it does the right thing. But I think what I would encourage the regulators to do is to continue to hire really great people to invest in insurance. And I can certainly speak from my experience back in 2008, when I was a regulator, we were focused quite rightly on banks because that was the problem that was happening, right? The banking system was in need of reform. I think now, given the narratives of where we are, both as a society and the economic shifts that are happening, you literally have a whole generational shift. The baby boomers are retiring, people shifting their patterns of work to wanting to work flexibly and from home and maybe not have a job for life, combined with the need to invest in the economy over a difficult part of the cycle. I think that it really does behoove the regulators to focus on some of these other parts of the economy, right? the growth of private assets, insurance in particular, pensions, where we're going to go with that. And most of all, I think the regulators need time. They need investment in themselves, investment in time to be able to spend the time engaging properly with industry. And that time would need to be granted by government. Is that what you're saying? They need space, less pressure from government, less to do from government? What I think they need is to have clear priorities and clear areas of focus. And I think my ask is to invest more in getting a deep understanding of insurance, working with us to create rules that enable the insurance industry to grow in a sustainable way. And I think they would find that the insurance industry is really open to that. This is the best time I think ever to work with insurance. We have data and a deep understanding of risks that we have never had before. And we have long data capital that could be used to invest to make the economy grow. So we have both things you need, but understanding of where to put it and what the risks are from doing it, the money to do it. So I think it would really be beneficial for them to engage even more than what they're doing now. Just so I'm clear, so by invest more in insurance, are you suggesting they hire more experts in insurance to ensure they can more closely regulate the sector or are you suggesting something else? That is one thing they could do. They could invest more with people who understand insurance and they could engage more with the industry around some of the changes that need to happen. I think traditionally the insurance industry has been at the forefront of of doing things in its own way. And now we need to have a bit more of a collaborative approach between the government, the regulators and industry around some of these bigger problems for the future. We need further dialogue around that because there are bandwidth issues and there are also issues on the industry side of making sure that we are clear about what the priorities that we want are. So willingness is there, but the how-to is difficult. I do think there's a point here, right, around having some metrics to hold the regulators to account. You know, on the one hand, you need to give them the support that they need to be able to manage multiple priorities. At the same time, I think it's really important that you hold them to account. Are we approving firms quickly and efficiently with the right level of supervision? Are we supervising firms at the right level where there's not too much supervision so that they feel strangled, but at the same time, there's an appropriate level of supervision so that we have the transparency that we need? And in particular, are we using data properly? That's the big thing that could change everything. Right now, a lot of the data inputs aren't drastically changed from what they were five years ago. And yet I think there's huge opportunities to be able to have data heavy and then effective pointed regulation if we get it right in the future. Mm -hmm. 
The government has recently said that it will be introducing something called call-in powers into its financial services markets bill, which is this package of post-Brexit reforms for the city. And those call-in powers do seek to provide lawmakers with the ability to ask questions of regulators if they aren't sure of the approach they're taking or if they just want further detail about what exactly they're doing. Do you think that those call-in powers will go far enough to provide those metrics to hold regulators accountable? Well, we'll have to see. I think that it is a step in the right direction in circumstances where we are facing almost constant change. So if you look at the issues that are happening with the economy right now, where interest rates may be changing weekly or monthly, or where because of data regulation, we may have issues that come up that require step changes to regulation on a more routinized basis. I think it's really important that government has the ability to step in and questions and say what's the impact of what's happening. But I do think that also needs to be data and more metrics that create real transparency around what's actually happening on the ground. How many enforcement cases are there? What has been the redress that's been provided to consumers? Have the applications been dealt with effectively? Is the level of supervision at an appropriate level? All of those things, I think, are going to be really important in addition to what's happening. Okay. And Nikhil Rathi, the CEO of the FCA, has implemented a reform agenda within the regulator itself to enable the regulator to become more of a data-led watchdog. So we'll have to hope that those plans come to fruition and are as effective as he would like them to be. Yeah, we're all very hopeful for that because I think it could be in a step change in terms of creating not just better regulation, but more efficient regulation because that will enable us to be able to grow as quickly as we want to and need to. Is there anything UK lawmakers are missing when it comes to post-Brexit regulatory reforms for the insurance sector generally? Is there anything they're getting wrong? I think one area that they could pay more attention is the need to be able to access specialist talent and skills around the world. If we want to remain a world-leading financial services sector, then we need to bring in things around digitalization, big data, AI, and all of those skills are not going to be here in the UK. And I think you need to be able to free up companies to be able to access that. And right now, particularly post-Brexit, right, there are regulations that make it more difficult to be able to access specialist talents as quickly as we used to be able to. So we'd like to be able to do that. I also think that there is some issues around DNI. DNI is something that, that I think we all are in agreement on. And I think some of the listing rules have supported the DNI changes, but I'd like to see regulators support diversity across the sector. Ultimately, financial services needs diversity of thought and diversity of skills and diversity of people. And in the insurance industry in particular, right, because we're looking at big long-term risks that impact society, both operationally and from a market's perspective. And I think we need a system that really supports that diversity so that it can reflect both the real risks that we have, but also the society that we need to serve. Okay, and you mentioned DNI, which is diversity and inclusion. In 2021, you became the first woman to head up a big fourth professional services firm in the UK. What did that experience teach you about gender diversity in the city? Um, that obviously is a really interesting topic that we could talk about for a long time. Probably to me, one of the most important things is to recognize that diversity and inclusion drives better outcomes, right? Better outcomes for firms better outcomes for society, better outcomes for clients, better outcomes, I think, in terms of people's satisfaction with what they achieve from their work environment, right? People really thrive when there's 
energy and different ideas being brought together. And we need to keep pushing it until we have a leadership of companies that is reflective of society and not just women, right? For me, women was probably my, my issue, but across the spectrum, whether it be diversity of thought, ethnicity, or even your social construct and where you grew up until we have business leaders that reflect that, I don't think that we're going to have as productive a society as we could that really responds to all of the challenges in the best way. So if you could sit down with the bosses of the major financial services firms in London and say, this is what you're getting wrong, this is what you could do to change the makeup of the city, what would you say to them? I'd say open your minds. The skills that we need today, I would say, are not the same skills that we needed even five years ago. Look at things like digitalization, social impact, ESG. These are not nice to have, right? These are imperatives. If you want to invest profitably over the long term, you're going to have to figure out how to invest in ESG. You're going to have to bring in digital skills and you're going to need to think about issues in a different way. And you're going to need to bring in every piece of talent that you've got for that. And so I think you need to pick up the pace in terms of what you're doing. The change needs to happen at the operating level. One of the reasons I came to Howden was because David Howden came to me and we talked about it. He said, I want you to start from scratch and build this business. And I thought, yeah, I can build a business for the future because I won't be constrained by the stuff that's happened in the past. And I think business leaders need to almost look at their businesses that way. Instead of always putting somebody who is a former CFO in charge of this, promote on talent and ability, not on what they did in the past. But also think about the skills you need, right? Recognize that the skills you need are actually different and really put your mind to it and really be blind about how you think about that. And also, I imagine, recognize that the skills you need may not be obviously presented in certain candidates, that you may need to perhaps spend a bit of energy digging a little deeper to what that candidate has actually spent their career doing and how they could add value to that role. Yeah, that's correct. One of the issues you've got is almost time and energy. People who are in business like to hire people that they are confident about because they have a CV or they have obvious qualities that match what they themselves have done. But the problem with that is twofold, right? One is you all end up with all the same people and the same kinds of people, right? And so we end up reconstructing this patriarchal construct. But the second point is you're not thinking deeply about what skills these people have that might be different and what they could be bringing that could be different. So I think that's right. And I think the onus is on us as business leaders to be driving that change because it can't realistically happen quickly enough from below. And one of my fears actually is that with the current business cycle that we're in, which is where interest rates are rising and there's a bit more volatility and people are nervous that we might go back to what we knew before because that makes us comfortable in times of stress. I think my encouragement would be, no, use this as the impetus to step forward into something different because I think those are the companies that'll be really successful. What do you mean by back to where we were before specifically? There's a deep comfort zone in hiring candidates who on paper look like the people who have the skills. And I think this is back to your point of you need to go beyond that to find the people who actually have the skills, not just the skills of the past, right, but the skills that we need for the future. And sometimes that's not obvious in a time-pressed environment, or even if it is obvious, you need to take that leap and bring people along with you. Mm -hmm the skills that you need. So you have to get over those biases that are inbuilt into the system and you need to force your system or yourself, depending on how big your organization is, but to be able to do that. And I think the biggest thing now, particularly as I'm a senior leader, is just standing up and calling it out, right? When you see things that are not right, 
calling it out and doing it. Because every time I've done that, I've found myself and been really pleased with the reactions. Okay, we've spent a lot of this conversation focused on the UK, but obviously the EU has its own ambitious reform agenda ongoing at the moment. What EU regulations are you keeping an eye on and why? Well, the big one, obviously, is solvency too. We talked about that. They've gone down a route that is similar to where the UK has gotten to, but they still have some further issues. It'll be really interesting to see the impact that that makes. The other ones I'm looking at are data. Right? Cyber and data is the biggest thing. So there's a regulation called DORA, the Data Operational Resilience Act. That is someone who used to run data security and information security at various firms is near and dear to my heart. I think this is going to be a game changer because what it does is it um, takes a lot of what I would call the real basics of ICT controls and makes them much more mandatory. So you're going to have senior management who are responsible for setting up appropriate levels of frameworks around ICT authority over the third parties. A lot of firms use third parties to manage their information security frameworks, particularly smaller firms. So again, making sure you have proper authority over that, having appropriate data regulations and making sure that the collection of data is there. Because one of the biggest things that's really hard for firms is you know what your data threats are. You see them all the time and the people who are trying to get into your network and the issues that you might have with your network. What you don't know is what's happening to everybody else. So any data transparency you can drive on that will make a huge difference. And I think particularly as this issue becomes even more significant as data becomes more significant with financial services, we just need to keep iterating that and getting better at that. So that's a big one. And having much more around regulation and climate change, I think it's going to be a big permanent feature of the next 20 years as these rules become more iterative. And I'm really looking forward to getting more clarity around things like green investments so that when people are making investments, they understand what the impacts are going to be. It's like how to measure how green systems are and your controls are. And to be really robust as we move towards this 2050 transition to make sure that what we think is happening is actually making a difference. So those are the big three, I'd say. Okay. Those are pretty meaty, big three, plenty to keep you up at night, I imagine. Lastly, and generally, what's one upcoming or current challenge that concerns you that you think not enough people are paying attention to? So currently, all of the focus of the regulators generally is on backward-looking data, right? What we do is we look backwards and we say, this is what we did before, and here's what we currently have, and then we extrapolate going forward. I think there's a real opportunity to invest in forward-looking models. If we can figure out what the world will be like and use our data intelligently, I think that that can be a real investment. Are there any regulators that you're aware of that are doing that? No, not to any great extent. And I think the technology's nascent is probably sitting in the companies more than it is in the regulators themselves, right? Because the companies are the ones that are investing in how do you predict hurricanes and things like that. There's tools on the financial risk side, predictive market data. A lot of it's quite real time. So the question is how accurate it is going forward. But I think on certain areas, they are getting very good on that. And then operational risk is probably the area where we have the best data. We can take a lot of the backward-looking data and extrapolate it forward in a very robust way. And so I think that's the area where I think you'll see the greatest changes. So for banks around things like trading, you'll be able to look and say where the problem's going to be around trading. So I think that that's another area where the dialogue would make sense because that could be a win-win. And what we want is regulation that works and that enables us to make good decisions going forward.
not hamstrung by some of the problems of the past that may not exist anymore. It's fascinating. I feel like that could be an in-depth conversation in itself. Definitely, definitely. But sadly, we've, we've run out of time today. Thank you so much, Mary. That's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.